0: Rowan, great welcome to Scotonomics, it's great to have you on. Um, My first question to you is, why is a law professor interested in monetary and fiscal operations?
1: Uh, well, I think, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I think you know, lawyers' job in part is to understand the institutions that we all inhabit and that govern our lives. Uh, I use a quote from the comedian Jerry Seinfeld that always stuck with me when I was younger. He said, you know, we're everybody's moving their piece around the board, you know, rolling the dice and hoping things go well, but if something goes wrong, it's the lawyers who are supposed to have read all the rules on the inside of the box. And I think when it comes to money and finance, it doesn't matter what you're interested in. It doesn't matter whether you're interested in criminal justice or whether you're interested in, you know, K to twelve education reform or whether you're interested in healthcare or whether you're interested in foreign security. Whatever it is, if you don't understand the money, if you don't understand how to pay for it, if you don't understand what the financial considerations are, what the financial logics driving the behavior in that area, you're probably not going to have a very good assessment of, of what's going on, what could be different, what are the stakeholders, what are the stakes. Uh, so as I came to law school, I already kind of knew that that the, the monetary dimension was important. But as I went through uh, various areas of law, from from copyright to to criminal sentencing reform to education, et cetera, I, it just became very obvious to me that understanding the money and, and dealing with those concerns was a first-order priority for
0: making justice in general. Absolutely, that's that's the case. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is, would you say that money is a creature of the law?
1: Yeah, in fact, um, the very first MMT conference that I was invited to give a talk to um, was part of the, the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, Fadel Kaboob's uh, Institute, uh, and and the title of my talk was, Is Money a Creature of the State or a Creature of Law? And it was a sort of friendly corrective, not a criticism, but a, a kind of in, uh, adding some nuance to the traditional MMT story building on people like Abelona and, and Keynes and Innes who say that, that money is a creature of the state. And, and my point was that today in the modern world, we think of sort of the state and law to be to be largely coextensive because it's very rare that we interact with legal systems or legal issues that don't in some way, in some form come back to state power. Um, but historically speaking, there were other forms of legal institutions, right? Monarchies, religious authorities, um, uh, local communities have their own laws. Some laws are more customary. Some laws are more institutionalized, etc. And, and money, I think, has a has a deep relationship to law in general, uh, as well as the specific forms of modern money having a relationship to uh to to state-based legal institutions and state-based legal systems. So I think probably from the broadest perspective, it makes more sense to understand money as legally created and then to ask how the legal institution of money functions in a world dominated by the nation state and, and state power, than it is to start with the idea that money is always every creature of the state, and then to ask where, you know, private actors, other other forms of power come in. So it's it's more of a kind of nuanced corrective than it is a critic critique, but yes, I would say that understanding the law is, is a good way to think about it because it also gets you away from these very crude binary conceptions of sort of public versus private sector or government versus the people or these kinds of things. Um, for example, um, a lawyer it has a legal license from the state. They are an officer of the court, but they are also an actor with agency, autonomy, able to represent the interests of individuals and other actors against the state. Um, so how do you understand the lawyer's power? Is it just state power, or is it something that can actually be used to check the worst abuses of state power? Uh, and and similarly, when you're talking about, for example, um, the state enforcing private contracts or enforcing private property rights, um, in its best form, and I'm quite critical of, of of that in its in its sort of extreme form. But in its best form, part of the reason to create private property rights and create contract rights is to give individuals some degree of of, of a bulkhead of what they can um, be expected to defend against arbitrary state power. Right, the the, the liberal turn for all of its criticism today in the 19th century, was it was in part a turn away from the arbitrary excesses of state power to say, look, private actors, private individuals have things to rely upon. So when I think of, for example, the job guarantee, and sort of a key MMT recommendation, uh, policy plank, uh, I think of that as, on one hand, a form of state action, you're using public money to create public jobs in the name of public purpose. But it's also a form of of protecting individual rights against the arbitrariness of state power. The state creates unemployment. By by providing a job guarantee, you are protecting individuals against the worst abuses of a state that could enclose the commons and kick you out of subsistence living and then give you nothing on the other side. So uh, I, I think, you know, thinking of it as a legal creation first allows us to internalize some of these debates within the institutional structure, rather than thinking of it as the state hitting us on the outside. There is no outside to the legal system in that respect.
0: That's fantastic. It's a great explanation. Now, you talk about moneyness and the money hierarchy. Could you explain that for our listeners, for our viewers?
1: Yeah, sure, and I think this goes to uh, the endogenous money tradition that post-Keynesians and other heterodox economists have been advocating for many years. You know, early advocates and precursors, contemporaries, even of people like Marx, people like Took. Um, through to modern conceptions, you know, Minsky and others, obviously, various MMTs talk about the hierarchy of money. One of Stephanie Kelton's earliest papers was called The Role of the State in the Hierarchy of Money. Uh, Hyman Minsky talked about this a lot. Uh, fellow travelers of MMT like Perry Merling talk about the hierarchy of money. Um, so to me, at least the way to think about this is, is that there are various instruments, um, legal instruments, instruments that are legally recognized that can be used in payment, can be used in settlement, Uh, but they're not all equal. Anyone can create money, the challenge is to get it accepted, as Hyman Minsky famously says. So what what drives acceptance? And part of the answer is power, part of the answer is existing relationships and and legal enforcement uh, guarantees or the expectation of legal enforcement. And so you and I can create an IOU right now that is going to be legally recognized. We create a promissory note, we write on the top of it, I, Rowan Gray, agree to pay this person $100 in a week's time and I sign it on the bottom. And as long as I you know, give it in, in exchange for some form of consideration, the court will recognize that, the law will recognize that. Um, but of course, I can't use that to buy a soda at the average shop, I can't use that to buy a car, I can't use that to pay my taxes. Uh, So the question then becomes whose promises to pay, you know, go further than mine. And the most obvious one is that is the state's unit of account, the currency itself, because it promises to be accepted back by the state. You you issue this IOU, we will take it back with government debt. The assumption is you don't take it back until it matures. Uh, But. Even certain forms of government debt can be accepted back before maturity. In the United States, there's a relevant aspect of the US code that says the Treasury Secretary can accept Treasury bills uh, at face value in payment taxes even before they've matured. Um, if they did that regularly, then it would make the link between dollars and, and Treasury bills even more obvious to people. Um, but if you go below the government, if you go below the actor that sort of validates the law itself and creates legal tender or, or a, a tax receivable instrument, then you start to have other private actors whose, whose IOUs may travel quite widely. I mean, one very obvious example is a Starbucks gift card. Um, people give them for, for weddings and birthday presents, sorry, and, and they hold them in their wallet next to their bank card and things like that. Why is that valuable? It's valuable because it can be used to get a coffee. That's what it's acceptable in payment of. You want a coffee? You can use this rather than regular dollars. And hey, maybe you'll earn some points along the way. Now, it doesn't have a super high degree of moneyness because it's relatively limited to not only just coffee, but one particular company's coffee. Um, But something like a bank deposit uh, has a much wider uh, degree of acceptability because people don't think of a bank deposit as an IOU of one bank. They think of it as an IOU of the whole banking system in fact a lot of work a lot of effort a lot of laws have been passed a lot of institutions created to make one bank's deposit basically identical to every other bank's deposit uh, at least down at the level of most most people's interaction right if it's insured by the government then it doesn't matter whether the deposit you're holding is chase manhattan bank or jp morgan or barclays or whatever else uh it's all backed by the full faith and credit of of the government behind them all. Um, and in fact, the difference between an insured bank deposit and an uninsured bank deposit—most of us won't wouldn't spend much time thinking about it. In part because most people don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in your bank account just sitting there. Uh, but at the level of shadow banking regulation, at the level of macroprudential regulation, at the level of global financial stability. That distinction is actually incredibly important. People like Zoltan Pozar and others who trace the rise of shadow banking in part to the fact that bank deposit insurance is limited. It isn't unlimited. There is a difference when you go to that $250,000 cap and then you have the dollar above that. It becomes different. So even the same entity issuing IOUs might have different degrees of moneyness depending on how accepted they are. But what you start to think about is how your particular instruments, how your particular IOUs circulate and why people accept them. Venmo, for example, or PayPal does not have deposit insurance. Mobile money issued in sub-Saharan Africa does not necessarily have deposit insurance, and yet it circulates with a high degree of moneyness. Why? Well, partially it's to do with the payments technology. It's easier to use that technology. And this is in part what advocates of cryptocurrencies are betting on, is that they will develop payments technologies that are so easy to use that even though the underlying credit instrument, the underlying value is unstable, the convenience of the payment system is worth it. Um, But you could also have entities that have uh, access to or support of public authorities, uh, either implicitly or explicitly. So for bank deposits that are insured, it's explicit. But for shadow banking entities like money market mutual funds, the guarantee is more implicit. So for those actors, the IOU in question is not even a deposit, it's a share. And the assumption is that the share will have a relatively fixed value so that you can use it like it's a dollar bill uh, or like it's a dollar bank deposit. Uh, But what we saw in 2008 is that that relatively fixed value can become destabilized. And in that moment, the government bailed it out. So that even though you don't have explicit insurance, you have a sort of de facto implicit insurance. Yeah, I'm using these different examples to try and paint a picture that, you know, you've got yourself down here, you can issue an IOU, but it's not going to circulate very far. And then you've got actors that might be able to issue IOUs that circulate a fair bit because of the technology of the payment system. Then you've got other actors that are issuing IOUs that circulate a fair bit because of the implicit government support that's coming or explicit. And then at the top of the hierarchy, you have the actual actor themselves issuing the final unit that can be used in, in legal settlement. Uh, and when you put all them together, they're very different. They have different purposes, different properties, different dynamics, but they all have something in common that you can evaluate relative to each other, which is this moneyness. I have less, they have more. If you think about it that way, you can start to see how these different properties, these different dynamics interact with each other. And
2: would you say some currencies have more moneyness than other currencies? Uh,
1: well, no, not necessarily. I think it depends on what you what you're looking at when you talk about moneyness, right? Within a particular unit of account, uh, different instruments may have more or less moneyness. Uh, so, within the U.S. dollar system, my IOU for dollars might have less moneyness than the bank's IOU or the money market funds IOU, and certainly the state. But you could also have situations where, or, or or, a Starbucks gift card might have more than me, but less than a bank or something. But then you can also have the idea that there is, there's not just one unit of account, right? Even within the United States, even within the United Kingdom, even within Europe, there are multiple units of account. The obvious ones nowadays are foreign currencies and cryptocurrencies but historically there have been all sorts of parallel currencies going back years and years uh in Ithaca where I lived in upstate New York um there was an hours-based currency where you could contribute your volunteer time and they would issue dollars based on the amount of hours that you contributed that wasn't a dollar US dollar currency that was a human labor hour based currency um And uh, the Buckaroo program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City gives out, you know, units of the Buckaroo based on the amount of hours that you volunteer. Um, Others have got different uh, uh, units of account. Uh, And nowadays within cryptocurrencies, you've got, you know, Bitcoin's its own unit of account. Ethereum's its own unit of account. But globally, the most common way you see other units of account is other countries' currencies. Uh, And you'll see this with dollarization. So countries like Ecuador or Zimbabwe using the U.S. dollar. Uh, they might issue their own currency as well. They might not, but the U.S. dollar will circulate there in part because people don't trust that government, or that government doesn't have a stable governance regime to enforce laws and pay taxes, or that people don't trust that that regime is going to be smoothly functioning tomorrow the way that it was yesterday. Uh, even in countries with relatively developed units of account, say for example the European Union. Obviously, it's not a country, but there are many countries there, and A lot of European Union banks will issue deposits denominated in US dollars, what they call euro dollars. And that's not against the euro, but it's operating within the same jurisdiction as the euro. And so I think you get to this point where there is a kind of plurality of units of account as well as a plurality of credit units within a unit of account. Um, It might make more sense to use another term there, but in the broad sense of moneyness as how acceptable this is, how likely people are to want to use it, all that kind of thing. I think they both fit together. Yeah.
0: In a country, you know, in a domestic situation, your um your 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 highest degree of moneyness is the state's currency because it has um the structures of the state behind it and the law courts, etc. etc. Um then when you have your your domestic currency and you're comparing it with other currencies across the world, what do you think is affecting the uh, moneyness of your currency in comparison to other currencies?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is, is, is a sort of developmental state consideration. Do you have a rule of law? Do you have an effective legal system? Do you have, you know, Effective tax collection, law enforcement, things like that. If you don't have that, uh, do you have stable elections? Do you have a population that expects the country to continue to have a, the similar form of government that they have today without a kind of revolution or a coup? If you don't have that, then I think even, even if you're issuing your own unit of account, you may be at risk of, of a kind of dollarization, that people do not trust your local political authority enough and, you know, you could imagine this with Putin, Putin takes over Ukraine, it doesn't mean the Ukrainian people want to, to suddenly switch to using the Russian ruble, they might resist that extremely aggressively. Um, that's quite different from if Scotland becomes independent and wants its own unit of account, the public, there are presumably not going to suddenly stop wanting to um, honor the rules of the road or, or, or basic contracts. Um but I think for a country that isn't isn't on that edge of legitimacy crisis, and I would put you know Zimbabwe there. I would put even Ecuador. I put dollarized countries often in that category, um, but not all of them. Uh, the other kind of way I think you're going to see this is is if countries do not have the kind of economic sovereignty, or if you don't like that term, the economic autonomy, or the or the ability to 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 either dictate or successfully negotiate your terms of trade with the rest of the world, uh, then the the, the the threat, the pain of autarky, of, of being disconnected, or of not being able to source uh, imports and other things you need from the rest of the world, uh, might be so much that you're forced to um, adopt someone else's currency. And so even if you might have your own rule of law, government, et cetera, if you are a heavily dependent importer, or if maybe you aren't a heavily dependent importer, but your large swath of your economy depends on key imports that you must have, then you can't just say, we're going to go it alone. And I think what we're seeing with Russia is an example of just how hard it is, even for a large company country with a large export base to quote, unquote, go it alone when the whole world is against you. Uh, So in situations where that kind of thing is happening, then, uh, uh adopting someone other, another country's currency or adopting rules about your currency that might limit the flexibility that you otherwise would have to do whatever you want uh, can make sense. And, you know, on, on the extreme case of this, I would say you have countries like China and Germany that are running export oriented economies in part to accumulate foreign reserves or to get an inflow coming in from the rest of the world. They're pursuing a set of policies there that I wouldn't say are actually necessarily in the best interests of German workers or, or, or Chinese workers, but do make sense if your goal is to stay geopolitically integrated with the rest of the world on the terms that you currently find available. If you do not have the ability to, you know, otherwise ensure peace with the united states but if you can integrate your economies through becoming a primary importer to them that might make sense geopolitically it might be terrible for the living standards of your population but might make sense to avoid an eventual war so i think it, it definitely there are definitely a range of considerations ranging from you know do you have a functioning government and state and society through to how dependent are you on the rest of the world and how much pressure are they putting on The kinds of decisions you want to take to use your currency. But I think this also goes to what we actually mean when we say having flexibility here. Nobody, I think, in the MMT world is saying just because you can sort of issue your own currency that you should do completely stupid things with it Um, or things are going to run your economy into the ground. Part of the reason we're suggesting we could use more of our fiscal capacity is because we're pretty confident that the things we're suggesting would be net improvements to the economic performance of that country so if you had scotland tomorrow all other things equal at six percent unemployment or one and a half percent unemployment which one of those is likely to have a better impact on the scottish economy relative to the rest of the world i think it's the the latter clearly Mm -hmm. and if you were going to say would you rather have a scottish economy that has a lot of internal demand driven by you know giving back to its own population A large share of the surplus it's generating. i think that's also an obvious positive now does that mean if the whole world said we hate an independent scotland we want to try to scuttle it as much as we can that they couldn't shut off so many sources of international finance and and imports and things to make that very difficult of course they could but what kind of monsters would the rest of the world be if they said we're going to do that because scotland wants to employ everybody Right. If Scotland said we're invading Ukraine too, fine. I get it. Like maybe you deserve it, but I don't think that's forthcoming. I think, hey, we're going to provide healthcare and renewable energy and jobs for everybody. Is the kind of policies that other countries might decry as too socialist or something, but certainly aren't aren't a justification for. Um, uh, for completely, kind of, yeah, yeah 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 complete isolations you,
2: you've given us a really good checklist there um uh you know about i suppose the, the preparedness of our country for its own currency and i think we um too often we concentrate on kind of what resources have we got and you know what what um what um what have we got in the bank that could support our currency? And I think with that checklist, there, you say, well, the world looks at you very differently, and it looks at government and, uh, and and the legal system and all of these things, which of course Scotland has. It's you know it's it's, it's unquestionable looking at that to think that it wouldn't be similar to to the support that that a currency or or a country would have currently is the United Kingdom. So I think that's really good to have that list because, yeah, I think we kind of look for the little chink in the armour when maybe you're just saying, actually, it's other things
1: that are important. Is Scotland closer to New Zealand or Ecuador? I mean, I think it's closer to New Zealand, right? Uh... (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, and of course, we're a lot closer to Finland Denmark, Sweden in terms, not geographically, which we obviously are, but but in terms of our economy as well. But I think that's a really good point. I, I had one very specific question to you, because during the 2014 referendum, Scotland was talking about using the continue to use the pound and there was a legal element to that discussion and people were saying well could we even use the pound if we wanted and i don't think that's been completely cleared up as we're talking again about possibly using uh, sterling going forward can any country use any other country's currency as their own or is he still very much in a role as a, a user and not an issue but what's the legal framework for a country using someone else's currency
1: yeah, no, it's a great question. I think there's two layers here, right? One is the unit of account, and the other is the the means of settlement, as, as sort of MMTers talk about, right? Anybody could adopt another country's unit of account, because it's just a measurement tool. The relevant question then becomes what you consider to be the highest form of settlement. Uh, and usually, the assumption is if you're using another country's unit of account, it's because their currency is the highest form of settlement. So when Ecuador dollarizes, or when you know another country, when Zimbabwe dollarizes, it's not that they're issuing a Zimbabwe dollar denominated in the US dollar and that's the highest form of settlement. It's that the US dollar is the highest form of settlement. They're using someone else's currency. Now, Scotland could say we're going to keep everything priced in pounds, and we're going to issue a Scottish pound. And they could either have that pound be discounted so that three Scottish pounds equals one British pound so that for every dollar that gets issued, you have to issue three of them. Or they could say, we're going to make sure that the Scottish pound we're issuing has a one-to-one fixed exchange rate with the British pound. Now, if you do that, you run the risk of not being able to hold that peg. You run the risk of not being able to back that up. And where that manifests, where that turns up is in your foreign currency reserves. So for example, Europe, has a number of banks that issues dollar denominated deposits. They didn't ask permission to the United States to start issuing debts denominated in dollars. They just said, oh yeah, we're just going to put a dollar sign on our contracts. But the problem is that everybody then holds those thinking they're as good as U.S. dollars themselves or U.S. dollar bank accounts in the United States. And then when you hit 2008, you hit that big liquidity crunch, that big financial crash. Suddenly, everybody says, "Actually, I'd really rather hold real dollars, uh, or I'd rather hold a different asset, like a treasury bond." And they try to convert out. And at that moment, the fiction gets sort of dispelled. The idea that up until then, the hundred dollars you had in a European bank that said a hundred dollars was roughly equivalent to the hundred dollars in America, but now maybe not. Maybe that was actually only worth fifty dollars in America or something. So what did they have to do? They went to the United States and they said, "We're going to have a, a, a U.S. dollar." liquidity crisis in Europe, unless you help us. And the US Fed sat down with the the ECB and they came up with a swap line arrangement and they gave them an unlimited or virtually unlimited a uh, 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 foreign currency uh, uh, credit line. And since then, that model has been extrapolated out to many, many countries. It started off with six. It was uh, Canada, Swe- uh, Switzerland, the UK, Europe, Japan, United States. And now it's more like 20 in that core group. And then they're expanding outwards with other bilateral swap line agreements. So could Scotland uh, uh, issue, uh, continue to use the British pound as its unit of account? Yes. Could it issue its own instrument in that unit of account? Yes. Would that probably be enough? No. Most people would probably consider to still think in pounds and think British pounds were the final means of settlement. Could they survive there? Yes, but you might face a, a liquidity crisis if the Bank of England wasn't willing to lend to you. But given that you're on their doorstep and a close partner, et cetera, what you would probably have very quickly is a swap line arrangement. And then all that would matter would be the terms of that arrangement. And those would be negotiated as part of a general geopolitical arrangement, probably alongside, you know, national defense, et cetera, because no matter how salty the Brits might be about losing Scotland, they probably wouldn't want to have the entire country on their northern border completely collapse into chaos. So they would probably... Provide that swap line arrangement if they can do it for Switzerland, presumably they can do it for Scotland. So that's the short answer. The longer, that's the long answer. The short answer is um, they could keep the British pound, but you would probably do better uh, breaking away from it and then focusing on um, foreign currency dynamics directly rather than using their unit of account. And very briefly, why would that be? Because you can do things with foreign currency dynamics that are less tailored than if you're only relying internally on liquidity. So to give an example, Australia is a relatively small economy that has its own currency. So is New Zealand. They float those currencies. But you do not always have inflationary impacts around the West of the world or or, or with parts of those economies show up in a devaluation of the currency. So what I mean by that is you can if you move from it all being under someone else's unit of account, but you constantly suffering liquidity crises to you wishing your own currency, but then having to manage the foreign exchange rates, foreign exchange dynamics are not mechanical. They do not always uh, operate according to one particular logic because they implicate geopolitics, etc. So uh, they implicate broader geopolitical considerations. So if you move to a system where Scotland had its own currency, that currency floated, you would probably still want a swap line arrangement. But if you didn't have that, it's unlikely that the currency would go into complete freefall uh, in, in an acute crisis moment in the way that you could see with a liquidity crisis. If Europe didn't get that swap line, it could have been in a really bad place. Not because its economy was so weak, but because it had promised dollars that it couldn't deliver. Whereas if you're only promising your own Scottish pound, the risk may show up in those foreign exchange dynamics, but it's not going to be as sensitive to- Because you can always
2: make the payment.
1: Yeah, that's right. You might have a devaluation, but devaluation is always relative. It's always relative to the rest of the, the world's economy. Whereas that liquidity crisis, you either have the dollars to pay or you don't.
0: There's another thing that I wanted to point out that you speak about quite a lot, and that's the responsibility of everyone to, um, you know, increase knowledge about un- the understanding of currency and how it works. Um, you know, you just point out that politicians are not responsible for the heavy lifting on monetary and fiscal education, and frequently they're just not in a good position to do that. You know, uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts about trying to create more education about um, economics and, and how mon- monetary and fiscal operations work?
1: Yeah, and to be clear, you know, I do think that politicians can play a role, but I think part of the problem is that, the, that most politicians function by validating what people already believe. That's how part of how they become politicians, is they say, you know, I hear you, I feel your pain, I'm one of you, I'm echoing what you're telling me, I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm repeating it in a larger megaphone, etc., um, that doesn't mean they can't imp- you know uh, uh, exercise leadership and and identify things that people didn't know that they were feeling. but it does mean that you have to be able to tap into uh, where people are already at and oftentimes with this stuff it's complicated. it's not the kind of thing that you can convince someone of with one turn of phrase or with a one twenty minute speech or something it's it's something that might, take a while for people to stick with they will they might sort of resist it even almost violently until it sinks in and often the best way to manage that is through relationships it's through trust it's through ongoing dialogue which are not the things that politicians optimized for sound bites and and media interviews and and talking points are able to do so you know if if it, you know maybe use an example like marriage equality or lgbtq rights support right you, a politician who stands up and says everybody should you know accept each other if you're not primed to hear that that might not be as effective as sort of having hearts and minds conversations with people because you've got a loved one in your family or because you know somebody or because your kid goes to school with somebody or whatever else it is and I think it's the same thing with money there's a lot of people that this stuff sounds boring it sounds crankish it sounds tin hat conspiracy theory and and they're not wrong because there are a lot of tin hat conspiracy theorists that only want to talk about monetary stuff and there's a lot of anti-semites who only want to talk about monetary stuff you know if i hear a random person on the street wanting to talk about how money works i'm probably going to assume they're a libertarian or a cryptocurrency gold bug more than an tier so I think it does require sort of taking people where they are and, and and plugging into existing institutions. If you can't explain to the labor movement why they should care about money, why should the labor movement care about this issue? You know, same kind of issue. So I think politicians definitely play a role, but a lot of it is on us to to find groups that already are hurting and explain to them why this is an angle that matters. And I think it is difficult because often when you see it, it feels kind of almost so obvious or it feels so exciting. You want to kind of just be like almost shake people and be like, why don't you understand this? But the reality is that the breaking through to people, genuinely persuading them to change their mind about big issues is hard. It's, it's a, it's a set of skills that is more than just, well, I've given you the information, you know, why didn't you get it? You idiot. Um, you actually have to have a theory of who those people are and how, how they're thinking and why they're thinking that way. And then what your intervention is, is doing, um, and so I, I think, you know, we have the internet, We have a much more open uh, way of reaching large numbers of people than we had throughout most of human history. And that's a large part of why MMT got to where it is is because it bypassed the traditional gatekeepers in economics and went straight to the people to make a case to them. And the reason it got to the politicians is because of that work. Now that doesn't mean, you know, get a soapbox and stand on a street corner and just shout. You still want to be strategic, but I think it does mean that you don't pick a battle until you've actually built an army and that army doesn't start with the general. It starts with the mass conscripts. Um, And, and so, you know, you want politicians great, but the way do you get politicians is you get enough people calling them to the point that they have to take it seriously or, or you get enough of the experts and the elites on board so that the people that those politicians rely on tell them this is how it's going to go and i think that's a dual track strategy that really matters but i think in that situation what you're looking for is finding those champions in the legal profession in the finance profession in the banking profession in the in the top of industry or in the top of advocacy groups or whatever and that's part of why my colleagues and i have have tried to expand the realm of mmt's you know Insights to things like financial technology and payments, because there are a lot of people that are asking really fundamental questions right now. What is money? How does it work? What do we want the future of money to look like? What is important about our current system and what isn't? They're not saying those things because they read MMT. They're saying those things because of crypto forcing them to to have to have an opinion about this stuff. They're asking these things because of Facebook's digital currency. And so being opportunistic in terms of what policy issues might lead us back to this conversation while also being understanding that not everybody else is going to necessarily see that linkage until you carefully point it out to them i think it's part of it but you know embed yourself in other organizations embed yourself in other movements not just to be a plant but to do the work there so that when you raise this stuff people go oh yeah, you're someone that understands adds value here. You've been a solid, you know, union yeah. member for years. You've been a solid member of the SP for years. You've been going there doing the work. We trust you. You tell me this is important, I'll listen. And getting that credibility is difficult. Keeping it is even harder. But I think without it, you're just another random crank telling people about a very complicated idea that if they don't already trust you, they're probably not going to have the chops to evaluate whether it's accurate or not, which means they're going to fall back on their gut. I had
2: a conversation with a a member of the Scottish Parliament just a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking her about um, the importance of um, currency. And she said to me, it's not something that she really hears anyone talk about in her community. And she doesn't think that's that's important. And I was at that situation where, as you just described, I wanted to kind of, you know, say it's so important, there's nothing more important, but... When I had that conversation, I almost thought that as soon as I said the word currency, it took people on a completely different track and they weren't thinking about money. They were thinking about currency. But I think that was such a really important thing that she said. Currency is not important. And I think we too often talk about currency. And I said at the start, Scotland's currency. Do you think just simply saying Scotland's money makes it a little bit easier or is there a, a better way of approaching that problem
1: yeah, I mean, so the, the term money is vague and can cause confusion, right? And then people like Warren Moso and others say, I don't use the word money, I only talk about the specific instrument. And I understand that that because it is a vague term, but it's also it is also the, the term that most people understand and use. And so, you know, dealing with the vagaries of language, I'm a lawyer. That's my job, right? Like that's that's you, you do use terms that are vague and undefined, but also have a lot of power in them but to give the example of what you're talking about you know when you know when the one currency is going to light people up again if it's digital currency if you say hey we need to have an answer if we're going to be talking about creating our own monetary system as we go independent what's our solution to crypto are we just going to be pro crypto we're going to be anti-crypto we're going to issue our own digital currency like all these other countries that might be something that they've heard about not just currency in general where they're thinking coins and paper notes that's like Yeah, who cares about that? Numismatists, people that go to historical societies, right? I don't hear about anything about that. But if you say, hey, austerity, austerity, how many people in your community are concerned that we don't have the money to pay for revitalizing public infrastructure? How many people in your community are concerned that the only way to uh, improve public services is if we take the money from their pockets? What if we told you that that's not where the money is going to come from? And that's not a crankish belief. What if we told you that, you know, we have a limited amount of resources, but right now, every time a bank makes a loan, it's laying claim on the same resources that we might want to lay claim on with public spending. How can we have an inflation regime where we're trying to limit the harm of inflation on the average people, but without gutting public services or taxing people's purchasing power into oblivion? I think those are things that they might be interested in. But again, yeah, you've got to you've got to think about where they're at, not because they're an idiot, but because if your narrative is not reaching them, your narrative isn't doing its job. The proof is in the pudding at that point. And I can speak to politicians, but you know, just to give an example, I actually dated a girl during law school whose mother was running for Congress and she didn't give a crap about any of this stuff either. But I had a chat with her because I was got to meet her and things. And the first thing that she said was, Oh yeah, I can't say that. And I said, "Yeah, I know. I didn't get upset about it. I didn't, and how could you think that? You know, no. Of course, you. Of course, you aren't going to stand up tomorrow and just say this because you'll be laughed off the debate stage. It's the easiest win for the other side to paint you as a crank and move on. Because why would you be able to say this in a 15 second video clip? But if I can convince them that it's important and that when the time comes to call us, then when they do get that cryptocurrency." question or when they do get a banking question or if you say hey if you're sick of having all the good things that you want to get done scuttled by how you pay for a question we can help you with that then you're not sitting there going how can you not be like me why do not you see what i see you idiot you're actually adding value to them in a way that's going to make you helpful for them so they want to pick up the phone and call you next time and that's led me to, to write legislation that wasn't my top priority, but was helpful to the people that I was trying to be helpful to. And that meant when the next thing came down the pipeline, I was able to help with that and and steer it my direction. So I, I think that's a, a big part of it is, you know, if you want to convince people, you need to start with adding value to their lives or to their issues. Yeah, completely agree. The proof, the proof of whether you're successful or not is whether you actually change those people's minds. And if you don't, you can say it's their problem, but in fact, you're the one that set out the task of changing their minds. And if you didn't yeah, do the it- message
2: and the messenger are, are, are both really important. And I think with with when you're talking about a new way of looking at money, it is something that's so inherent that the old or, or the current paradigm is so ingrained, it's really difficult to move people. And I think because we're moving them in, based on an academic discipline of MMT that becomes even more difficult but I, I really feel that like you've been a bit of a, a good principal skinner there and I feel like you've schooled us a little bit on how we can better message this and support this within Scotland Roan that was fascinating
1: thank you so much yeah it's a yeah. pleasure keep up the good work you know I'm a big fan and and you know Viva Independence
0: yeah <laughs> thank you so much thank you thanks okay.
2: mate cheers Ron. Easy. yeah bye. well that was a really interesting quite in-depth uh, conversation with Rowan what did you think Kieran?
0: yeah I was really keen to get him on because he is as I said a law professor and it's uh, it's a slightly what's well, quite a big different viewpoint on on mm-hmm. currency and um and all the things that surround a currency
2: yeah I think it was quite interesting to have perspective from a lawyer and you'd kind of said to him why do you want to know about money being a lawyer. And he said, well, I'm a lawyer, I need to know how everything works. And I need to know what's at the heart of our society. And and I, that makes complete sense. And what it made me think was, well, why don't politicians want to know about this in the same degree? Because, you know, we, we've had politicians on, on the show and also on uh, other interviews, say they're agnostic, or they're ambivalent about the money supply. And there's a lawyer saying, you've got to know about this stuff if you really want to make a difference. So I found that really interesting. And for me, it definitely kind of passes that baton on to, for us to say to politicians, well, we think it's really important. Lawyers think it's really important. Why don't you think it's as important as as we think?
0: Yeah, uh, but by the same token as well, he also brings up during the interview that um, it's also something that the whole concept of money and what it's about the grassroots of an or, of an of uh, a political organisation also need to be busy with this as well. And he brought up that um, example of when he went to his girlfriend's mother's house and she was a politician and she said, I understand that, but I can't say that. So I think there's, a, there's an aspect of that where the, the, the grassroots need to be busy with educating the polity in general, I think, as well.
2: I mean, I, I think that is a really good point. And in, in his example, it seemed like, um, the the lady he was speaking to understood it but didn't want to say it. And I'm saying to you, I think a lot of our politicians don't understand it before they even get to deciding not to say it. And I really think that is a big challenge for us to, to help them understand some of these some of these details because it's incredibly complicated. You know, we can't deny that and, and people who watch and listen to the show will, will hear and see how complicated it is. But really, politicians... And people in general have to know much more about how the money system works, I think, for us to really make progress on all the issues that, that are much more important than that and what come from that.
0: Another really interesting point that I think we should maybe reiterate as well for the audience as well as the concept of swap lines. Um, Rowan brings that up. He's the first person that brought that up, I think. And, you know, I think a lot of people are not aware that central banks have swap lines between them. And this was something that began after the... Um, predation on currency from um, oh I've forgotten his name now um, George Soros George Soros. I think this was something that happened after that so I think in order to stop that kind of predation happening this this is going on and these swap lines have increased and they 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 are there are groups of swap lines between different banks and different countries so you know that's something I think that the audience should be aware of.
2: So that they can, they you know, if they have a liquidity problem, these swap lines help them solve it, and it's kind of underpinning the global uh, exchange. Of money, these the these swap lines, and and as um, Rowan said, there's no reason to think that Scotland wouldn't be able to get into um, swap lines when it has its own currency with other central banks, you know, European central banks, but but you know, central banks and uh, and and in other places across the world. So yeah, so I think that is that something underpinning it. Um, what I got from when he was talking about that was. No, having your own currency is no panacea. It's not like everything just becomes really easy. And he was saying there's a balance, really. Once you've got your own currency, then you're 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 managing the exchange rate. And I know David McWilliams said that's difficult for small countries. So there is it's, it's a challenge there. But on the other side, there's a massive problem with liquidity. And if you're spending effectively someone else's currency, or if you're not issuing your own money, then... Having to find the money to pay it back can be a huge problem. And his example, there was a European Union which which had a liquidity crisis. Now the European Union is the, you know second largest economy, or maybe even the largest economy group group together in the world, but it still had problems with liquidity. So you know when we're looking at uh, our own currency, we are balancing things up. But but Rowan had certainly said that you know it's 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 easier to manage your exchange rate than it is to manage a liquidity crisis when you effectively can go bust. So I thought it was a really important point that he pointed out, that difference between issuing and using your currency.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing that he brought up as well is the the, the things that make your currency work, for example, that your country is functioning. And like he said, you know, the rule of law and um, the taxation system. Um, and you know, these these are things that make the the, the country attractive to people f- to live there, um, either as natives um, or as people thinking about moving there as well. So these these things are really important too. And you know, a well functioning country is going to be attractive for for everyone, for obvious yeah, reasons. And, and,
2: yeah, and, and you know, a really good example there of of taking a step back and thinking would a Scottish currency work using those three tests? Does it have the rule of law that's enforced? Yes. Does it have a stable form of government? Yes. Does it have an effective tax system? Well, it should do because it can just build on everything that's been happening with the British pound. So looking at that little test, there's no reason why Scotland and a Scottish currency wouldn't work. Obviously, there's a lot of other areas to look at, but I thought that was interesting that he kind of concentrated on those those three. The last thing I wanted to mention, I got out of it, was this idea of what money is. And, you know, I I would love to do a little bit of a vox pop where you just stop people and say, what is money? And get them to explain it. But, you know, we, we said that to Rowan and he just basically said, it's an IOU. And it's no different from an IOU that I would give you, apart from the fact that it's backed by the state which means that you can exchange it for other things because when that person gets the IOU, they can exchange it for things that ultimately they can go to the government. And that's all money is, is an IOU. And when you see it like that, then it really does impact the, your perception of the ability of the government to issue those IOUs because it's not something they have to find or make. It's a promise to pay when that money's coming back. Were you happy with that definition of money? Do you think it's useful?
0: Absolutely. Uh, there's another lawyer that I follow as well, who's interested in this too, and you know, he he puts it very succinctly. The pound note is just a note, <laughs> and uh, you know, but we all agree to use these notes. And um, from a libertarian point of view. Um, they they don't like the, the the concept of the coerciveness behind this but you know if in a planet of seven billion people approaching eight billion people you know you really can't have community and function in between them unless you have currencies and so uh, yes there's a coercive aspect to it but you know I think it's uh, it's that's okay I'm okay with that <laughs>
2: yeah it, it makes it work it gives it the the, the moneyness. Um, which you spoke to to Rowan about there. well, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought that perspective was was really interesting. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was great to get someone who last month appeared on the John Stewart podcast. So you know we're definitely getting the right guests. um I, I, I'm gonna put a link to the episode uh, in the comments, but it's nearly a, a million views he's had. so hopefully um it's pretty good good for us to get someone of that quality to discuss and we're really lucky to have Rowan spend that time with us well I think that's it for our our coverage of money but I know it's an issue that we're going to look into a lot more and um, thanks everyone for joining us for this little bit of an extra conversation until next week bye from me and bye
0: from me